Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program, hosted by the Commonwealth Club, Silicon Valley, and by Wonderfest, the Bay Area beacon of science. My name is Tucker Hyatt. It is my pleasure to introduce Brian Green, director of Columbia University's Center for Theoretical Physics and author of Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. Brian is renowned for his groundbreaking discoveries in superstring theory, including the co-discovery of mirror symmetry and of spatial topology change. Brian has hosted two Peabody and Emmy Award-winning Nova miniseries based on his books, and he is co-founder of the World Science Festival. The Washington Post called Brian the single best explainer of abstruse concepts in the world today, and his previous best-selling books have sold more than 2 million copies worldwide. Moderating this evening's program is Kishore Hari, contributor to Tested.com and the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Brian Green and Kishore Hari. I'll keep on clapping, please. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, you're the one on crutches, but I knocked over lights already. Did you really? Good work. Demonstrating gravity for the audience. (laughs) Oh, look at that. And a second demonstration. Uh, uh, That's probably not going to be the last demonstration, given my my relationship with gravity. <laughs> this is a line and uh, from uh, from your book, and I I listened to the audiobook and it was sort of more telling because I could hear like the little bit of emphasis on this, and it definitely filled me with an emotion. Uh, you said life and intelligent life are ephemeral. When I heard that sentence, I was like, oh no, I was filled with dread. Yeah. You said it with profound curiosity and a sense of of uh, of wonder. Uh, and it really emphasized what this book was about, which was a meditation on all of eternity. I guess um, <laughs> the entire universe wasn't enough, so you, you did all of eternity. Um, and, and, but it didn't read as much as a physics book as sort of a meditation on, on all of time and, and our place and meaning in it. Um, why, why that? Why eternity? Yeah, well, you know, the book has as a theme this singular quality of the human species that we recognize that we are impermanent. We recognize our own mortality. And there's a long history of thought that that is a deep driver of why we do what we do. And as a physicist, what I found and I continue to find particularly interesting is that not only is the individual's life finite, not only is it likely, as we can discuss in greater detail, that life itself is likely an impermanent feature of the universe? The universe itself, in the sense of any structure that exists, from stars to galaxies to black holes to even atoms themselves, are likely impermanent too. So there's a wonderful reflection between this impermanent nature of reality writ large and the impermanent nature of individual life forms. And 
the interplay between those two and how we try to make sense of existence and try to impose some meaning on a life that itself is finite and all implications of life and what we do has limited impact because it all goes away. How do you make sense of that? Okay, if I said those same words, I would yeah. crawl into bed deep under the covers and just uh, yeah. uh, submit to the deep depression of that. But you say it in a completely different emotional frame. Absolutely. And uh, it wasn't always that way. I had my dark moments in, in thinking about these ideas over a long period of time. But I've certainly come to a place where I find it to be utterly remarkable that we finite creatures can do all we do, accomplish what we do, experience the wonder and beauty of the cosmos. And to me, it only adds a certain degree of urgency to that experience by virtue of the recognition of the finite nature of everything. So to me, it heightens the experience. It adds a certain quality to it. And look, I'm by no means the first person to come to this way of thinking about things. There are so many works of literature that have explored the possibility of immortality at various levels and various definitions. Almost all of them turn out badly. Right? Almost all of them wind up coming to the conclusion that it's not what you thought it was going to be. And I think there's something deep to that. And I think that informs my perspective and why, in the end of the day, I'm quite positive on the fact that everything's going to die. I'm going to take a cue from your book and focus on humanity before the science, actually. And I want to ask, has this always been your way of thinking? You, you have um, been quite open, especially on this tour, about, uh, about your family roots. Your, your father as, wasn't a scientist. Your, your brother, not a scientist. And, and I'm curious how your upbringing and your relationships with them influenced uh, your perspectives here. Well, uh, you know, upbringing and relationships have, you know, a deep impact, you know, even, even more locally, I can turn to the book in a moment, but, you know, I, you know, hobbling up on this stage, you know, that, that actually has a deep connection too. Uh, you know, I, I was raised Jewish and, uh, we kids, my siblings and I desperately wanted to have a Christmas tree growing up. And uh, my my mother was, no, we don't do that. And so I grew up and rebelled. And my family, we have Christmas trees each and every year. And this year, when discarding the Christmas tree, I bent down really deep to pull it out of the base and herniated a disc in my back, which is uh, the origin of that. But um, my, I have little doubt that my mother sees divine retribution in, uh, <laughs> in, 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 in what has happened. Um, so, so the, you know, in various levels, uh, it, it informs things. But back to your question, you know, my dad was a performer. He was a, 
uh, harmonica player, comedian, singer, composer, and you know he dropped out of school in in tenth grade. He went to uh, Seward Park High School. He liked to say he was an SPhD, Seward Park High School dropout. You know, uh, and uh, and but he was deeply interested in in all of these ideas. And he taught me the basics of arithmetic when I was quite young, mm-hmm. and uh, from like five years old. I would spend weekends multiplying huge numbers against huge numbers because it felt so inspiring to do a calculation that nobody had ever done before. Nobody had done it because it was not interesting to do. But for me, (laughs) there was something wondrous about the numbers and what you could do with them. And that certainly set me on the trajectory that I've been on ever since. Was that nurtured, like, from the get-go, that that curiosity about numbers and mathematics? Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, my dad's education was totally you know, on his own from reading, you know, magazines and books of that sort. But the the uh, deep curiosity that he had uh, drove him to uh, spend time with me on things that were not really in his sweet spot. But he found it exciting to to just set me off and set me going. And that really uh, was where, for me, it all began. Mm. Uh in good uh, scientist fashion, I'm going to have us define our terms before we get into the, the kind of meat of the book. Uh, and with this book that deals with all of eternity, uh, the one near constant uh, that's discussed often is time. Um, so let's talk about time. Like, yeah. How do you view time? What is time? Is that a thing that is answerable? Uh, I think it is answerable. We certainly do not have the answer today which is kind of a a strange state of affairs because we use the concept of time all the time. We can't even get away from it, even in that single sentence. And we also have developed devices that can measure temporal durations to fantastic accuracy. But the weird thing is, if you then ask us, what is it that you are measuring? It's very difficult for us to give a precise definition. We mumble things like, Time is that quality of the universe that allows for change to take place, right? Because we notice that time has elapsed by virtue of something in the environment being different. The position of the sun, the position of a second hand on a watch, or things of that sort. So so built into the notion of time is the notion of change, but it's difficult for me to go further than that. In fact, cutting-edge research today suggests that time and space as well may not be fundamental qualities of the world. They may be emergent qualities of the world, much like a good example, just to have an intuition about that, is temperature. We all know intuitively what it means for something to be hot or to be cold. What happened in the 1800s, 1900s, is we were able to go deeper and realize that temperature is actually referring to the average speed of the particles making up whatever system. So something's hot when the molecules are on average moving quickly. It's cold when the average speed of the molecules is slow. So temperature is actually an average notion of something more fundamental, the motion of ingredients, particles. Could it be that space and time themselves are like temperature and that they are not fundamental qualities of the world, but rather are average features that reside, rest upon, live upon 
fundamental ingredients like the atoms of space and time? Those are the kinds of questions that we think we need to address to fully understand what time actually is. So I'm going to ask a question that uh, is meant to sound profound, but I think it's not. Um, so for this, if following that same logic, can I ask you uh, what is mass? And you won't be able to say what it is um, or what is charge. Like these things that we were taught for, for years upon years that are fundamental natures of the universe, but you're saying maybe those aren't, uh, we, we can't actually answer that question in that, the that, lexicon we have. That's right. That is, that is not a trivial question. It's a, it's a deep question, and it really speaks to how physics gets done. So usually when we're faced with a puzzle like that, what do you really mean by the mass of something? What do you really mean by the charge of something? We feel that we've given enough of an answer to go forward if we can tell you, well, here's how you measure it. And here are the implications of having a certain amount of mass or a certain amount of charge. So we know that if you have a certain amount of mass, for instance, it will exert a certain gravitational pull on other mass that's nearby or at a given distance. We understand that if a particle has a certain electric charge, we understand how it will move in the vicinity of an electric or a magnetic field. So we have an operational definition of many fundamental qualities in the world, but if you push me hard and say, but no, like what is mass or what is electric charge, I can't give you the kind of answer that will feel satisfying. So colloquially, you can define it by what it does, yes. but you can't talk about what, what it, it is. is. Yes, so we substitute does for is as a means of being able to go forward. And look, this has been an enormously successful strategy Right. So even though I can't give you a first principles definition of what electric charges or even magnetic qualities are, what we can do is we can take our equations of quantum field theory and we can model the electron and we can calculate its electric and magnetic properties, in particular its magnetic properties, to 10 decimal places. And then we can measure its magnetic properties using our operational definition of charge. And it agrees with our calculations decimal by decimal, you know, number by number, not down 10 decimal places after the decimal point. That tells you that there's some deep truth in what you are doing, even if you can't give the is definition. You can only give the does definition. So uh, following that logic again, I'm going to go to something emergent and I'm going to ask it in, in this lexicon now. Uh, what does the Big Bang? Which is something that early ha is, yeah. happens early in your book. That's right. So, so we describe the Big Bang as a certain configuration of the universe, a certain configuration of energy and space and time. We assume that they're already there. And the Big Bang is the rapid swelling of space through time that allows us to make predictions for what the universe should be like today based upon this particular event that we believe took place in the distant past. And the wonderful thing is we can make predictions for the temperature variation of the night sky in deep space, and we can measure it with really fancy space-based thermometers, mm -hmm. and the temperature variations agree with the mathematical calculations. 
And that, again, is one of those pieces of evidence that makes us feel, yes, we don't fully understand how the universe began, which is often how people think about the Big Bang. That's a theory of how the universe began. It's not. It's a theory of how the universe evolved, assuming it already came into existence. And with that understanding of how it evolved, we can make predictions, and the predictions are borne out by observation. So does that bit uh, that turn of phrase give you any pause that which turn that the universe was already in existence and the big bang explains what happens essentially next uh that whole that moment of the universe was already in existence yeah it it gives me a great deal of pause (laughs) uh because look look the goal of the research that we are doing and have been doing is to give as complete an account of why the world, the universe, is the way that it is. And obviously, a key part of that story is truly understanding the origin, how it got started, why there is something rather than nothing is a question that we have struggled with and continue to struggle with. And until we have some insight into that, there are some big unknowns in our understanding of the universe. But the part of the story that makes us feel at least comfortable with our ignorance of how it truly got started is if we go a tiny fraction of a second after it got started, and I'm talking a really tiny fraction of a second, you know, 10 to the minus 20, 10 to the minus 30 in some theories of of a fraction of a second, we can run the equations forward and understand why when we look out into space, we see the things that we do. So that's pretty good, even though it's incomplete. So I, I have to ask, I want to advance the clock like a billionth of a second or maybe um, like uh, even less, even slightly more than that, because you spend some time talking about inflationary theory in the yeah. book, which is that very early in the universe. What is the actual number? Like how far into the universe? Oh, uh, you know, call it 10 to the minus 35 seconds. Okay, I know. was off by a factor of a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and you spend time on it because it is this emergent yeah. um, uh, period, uh, and it also doesn't um, it, it it runs counterintuitive to at least how I remember the Big Bang being taught to me as a theory that there is this period of inflation. So maybe you can take us I- into yeah. inflation. Yeah. So so the big puzzle, even just assuming that the universe somehow came into existence, not even trying to struggle with that deep one is what set the outward swelling of space off in the first place, right? I mean, what was given the outward push? And it's a real puzzle because the dominant force in a situation like that is the force of gravity. But gravity, from our experience, is a force that pulls inward. It doesn't push outward. Mm -hmm. So what do you do about that? And the remarkable thing, and... Many of these ideas go back to Albert Einstein in one form or another. But in the, uh, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, scientists basically rediscovered an idea that does go back to Einstein, which is in Newton's theory of gravity, gravity only pulls inward. That's the theory of gravity that you know, we teach to high school kids. But in Einstein's general theory of relativity, his more refined description of the force of gravity that he gave to the world in 1915, it turns out that the behavioral repertoire of gravity broadens. Of course, it can pull inward as in Newton's theory and is valiant in describing common experience. But it can also push outward. 
So in the general theory of relativity, there is an anti-gravitational force, a repulsive gravitational push. And the idea is that clumpy rocks like the Earth give rise to the attractive version. But if you have energy uniformly spread through a region, not clumped up, then in Einstein's theory, it gives rise to repulsive gravity. So the belief is, the hope is, the proposition is that in the early universe, there was a little region of space that was uniformly filled with energy. That gave rise to an outward repulsive push. That's the inflationary expansion. And that's what drove the Big Bang. I'm, I'm partly smiling because I'm sitting with one of the most esteemed thinkers in physics in the world, and he's using the term clumpy <laughs> to describe <laughs> one of the most term. defining yeah. moments yeah. of all of the universe's right. creation. Uh, so I'm going to fast forward, I don't know, let's say like about 14 billion years. How do you feel about that? Uh, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, are you suggesting that there's this, there are these periods, these moments that are billions of a billionth of a second that extraordinary things were happening that are governed by physics that gave rise to us sitting here and having this conversation. Like there's a way that that is such an extraordinary leap for me to think about yeah. in, in this existential way of like, how does that moment of push out result in me and you having this conversation here? Yeah. And um, it is miraculous to think of we being the output of the kinds of physical processes that we are talking about. And the way I describe it in, in the book, as you know, is I organize that development around two main principles that help you gain sort of a mental toehold on how it could be that you start with this outward rushing of energy, outward rushing of particles, outward rushing of space, and yet somehow yield the world as we know it, with us being the inhabitants. And the two principles are entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, which is, roughly speaking, the statement that things tend to evolve from order toward disorder, from structure to degradation of structure. It's sort of the withering away of things in the universe, while evolution in its most broad interpretation, not just at the level of species, which is how Darwin and Wallace initially articulated it, but there's a version of evolution that applies right down at the level of molecules and atoms. Mm -hmm. You can have not only competition between distinct species for the limited resources in the environment, but you can have competition between different species of molecules mm -hmm. that have learned the trick of making copies of themselves and those that replicate fast and, and efficiently and with great stability are the molecules that will be really good at grabbing the resources in the environment, and they will be the ones that dominate the molecular demographics. So, so you have, in that sense, you can build up structure by virtue of replicating molecules being really good and mutations that are even better, and the mutations can yield ever more complex molecular forms, with entropy riding along being ultimately the force that will cause these complex structures to degrade. But you're not positioning evolution and entropy as two sides of a different point. Not quite, not quite. They, they, um, the, the story is not quite that simple because... If it were the case that entropy and its relentless increase was something that applied 
in some very flat-footed, straightforward way, you wouldn't ever get any structure in the world. Because, look, from the Big Bang, you would just have particles rushing outward, and the tendency of particles to spread would simply cause the particles to spread ever more widely throughout space, right? As if it was just an explosion. Yeah, as if it was an explosion, and, uh, you know, as if it was a, a, a loaf of bread baking in your oven, right? The molecules, the aroma comes off the bread and it spreads outward through your house because there is greater disorder as they spread ever more widely. It's far less likely that the molecules will clump back together near the loaf of bread. And that's the notion of entropy and disorder always increasing. What changes the story in the universe, as opposed to your kitchen and your house, is the force of gravity in its attractive version. Because if you have enough particles in a region of space, gravity can then pull those particles together and create clumpy objects like stars. And the beautiful thing, and it takes a little bit of thought to go through this, but just to tell you how it works, when stars form, they are actually ordered entities... And you'd say, well, how can an ordered entity form? It's supposed to be going the other direction, from order toward disorder. How are you going from disordered particles to an ordered star? And the answer is, in the process of building the star, the ingredients give off enough heat and light so that there is disorder that is injected into the outer environment. And that overall disorder is greater than the order formed in the star. So the balance sheet is always going toward greater disorder, but you can have pockets of order forming along the way. I call this the entropic two-step because it's a, the idea is order forms here so long as there's enough disorder over here. And that's why we have things in the universe. This is the greatest excuse a teenager can use not to clean up their room. This is like the most thoughtful, my My excuse. son now makes use of these ideas for exactly that purpose. You're exactly right. <laughs> Uh, Well, I'm going to go to one of our great 20th century philosophers uh, that said, you know, in this house, we obey the second law of thermodynamics, which comes from Homer Simpson. Yeah. Um, And (laughs) and I think there's this there's this thought of, yes, entropy leads to more disorder, which is an oversimplification of what entropy is. I think the the physics teachers in this room would would probably harangue me for for even mentioning that simplification. Uh, But. But the idea of us talking here, I yeah. get what you're talking about in physical systems. Like when we're talking about a ball rolling down a hill or the earth forming with a with a satellite as the moon orbiting it. Yeah. But how does that explain us talking to each other or in ruminating about these topics? How does that explain um, my feelings of existential dread? Those aren't things that have... You know, that aren't underpinned by physics. They are underpinned by physics. They absolutely are nothing That makes nothing me feel but, worse for some reason. Uh, uh, well, again, you know, much as we discussed, you know, the impermanent nature of life in the universe, and there's a positive spin that I think naturally emerges when you think about it with uh, – great uh, uh, focus, I think the same thing applies as well to life and consciousness. So, so when these particles 
begin to come together into ever more complex molecular forms and they replicate themselves and they mutate and they create even more complex molecules. And at some point, the molecules learn another trick, which is to store information, instructions within their physical makeup that allows them to create even more complex molecules, not through replication, but rather by providing an instruction set for how the particles should come together. And over time, you yield the complex molecules necessary for life. The details are the stuff of cutting-edge research, so this is not a story that's fully been written. But there appears to be absolutely no barrier for physical laws acting on the particulate ingredients of matter to coalesce in a form that ultimately meets the requirement of life. You don't find that reductionist in some way? It is reductionist. And it is reductionism sometimes gets uh, a bad rap. But it is correct and it is true. The reason why it gets a bad rap is because we physicists sometimes stop the discussion there at the level of particles and laws. And it feels to some, naturally, that we are missing the very qualities that you are hungering for an explanation of. You know, consciousness and our inner emotions and and, and the qualities that make us who we are. And the point that I emphasize repeatedly in the book is that you need a collection of nested stories to tell the deepest, give the deepest explanation of reality and how we fit within it. You do need the physicist reductionist story, which underlies everything. You then need the chemist story, which shows how those particles can come together. You need the biologist story, which tells how those molecules can build up cells and the complex structures necessary for life. You also need the psychologist story and the neuroscientist story, which says consciousness emerging within the rubric of certain highly organized arrangements of matter. And so you need all of those stories, and the questions that you ask determine which of those stories is best able to answer the questions that you are thinking about. But all of these stories, they need to be self-consistent, and they are all at play when we're talking about any system in the world. Does, it, does those stories, I mean, that's incredibly profound when, when you start to unpack that thought. Yeah. Do those stories stop at the neuroscientist or or the biologist, or does it continue on to the philosopher, it does. or the artist, or the uh, or just the imagination of of the person walking down the street? It absolutely does, and and it does so in a variety of different ways. You know, for instance, when you when you think about say creative expression, you can ask yourself the question, what is going on in the human brain when it is undertaking some of these behaviors and are these behaviors somehow the product of an evolutionary history that's selected for those beings that carried out those kinds of behaviors. And this is, again, a contentious arena of thought. But if you imagine that creative undertakings are the product of a human species that survived by virtue of having the qualities of innovation and ingenuity, problem solving, the ability to exchange in a deeply social way, allowing us to pool brain and brawn in a way that other species are unable, then you can certainly see artistic expression 
as the natural outcome of that kind of creative thought that allowed us to prevail in the ancestral environment because we were able to problem solve in creative and innovative ways. So in that sense, the creative process that you're referring to can naturally perhaps be seen as part of a long evolutionary trail that goes right back to the ancestral environment. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. The way you're speaking of it, um, emphasizes wh- what I believe too, which is we're not there. Obviously, we d- we don't have this complete aligned story that's consistent in all these frames. We don't have that in science, let alone uh, when we move beyond the uh, boundaries of science. Uh, do you think we can get there? I do think we can get there, and along the way, we need to be deeply open minded to consider a variety of distinct explanations because look even for a creative expression there are people who think deeply about this for instance Steven Pinker perhaps is the most famous who think that certain kind of artistic undertakings take music as an example do not have any adaptive evolutionary role I mean his point and it's a famous phrase that's quoted by many he sees these kinds of activities to be the analog of cheesecake Right. What is cheesecake? Right. So our forebears survived because in the ancestral world, they developed a predilection for eating sugars and fats and oils. So fleshy fruit and ripened nuts, because those of our forebears who stocked up on those calorie rich foods are the ones that would survive when times turned lean. So there was a selection pressure to enjoy those kinds of foodstuffs. What is cheesecake? It's a modern incarnation that preys upon that adaptively useful quality in the ancestral world. It doesn't give us any nutritional value, but nevertheless, we are inclined to enjoy it because of our ancestral past. So Pinker says the same thing can be said about music. Those of our forebears who were more sonically attuned, listening to the environment, and they could hear a sound over there and a sound over there, and they would take it all in, they better understood the landscape within which they were existing. They had a better chance of surviving because of that. Music then ultimately comes along and preys upon that sonic sensitivity that was selected by these evolutionary pressures. And it doesn't provide any adaptive value to us at all. It's rather just pushing the pleasure buttons, in Pinker's language, that themselves relied upon our ancestral past. But now it's just parasitic. And so, so it's a very different way. I, I don't buy into that perspective because the ingenuity that I see to, that's required to create great music feels to me very much like the ingenuity that we see at work in problem solving and understanding the universe. I mean, what did Einstein do in the special theory of relativity? He looked at space, time, and light. 
and he rearranged the building blocks in an unexpected way where he made the speed of light constant, not space and time constant. He made the speed of light constant, which forced space and time to vary. That move, that rearrangement of the building blocks of reality is the same kind of ingenuity that you see in Bach, right? Glenn Gould, in discussing the Goldberg variations, describes how the music can be inverted and transformed in a manner that allows the harmonic richness to still prevail. So I sort of see this ability to rearrange the world in unexpected ways to be at the heart of problem solving, at the heart of ingenuity. And therefore, it seems to me that the artistic, creative predilection and and tendency of our species is deeply connected to why we survived and why we prevailed, but that is not something that's universally accepted. Uh... I am not having cheesecake with you. That is like an intense <laughs> experience to have cheesecake together. After that, I'm just, I'm just imagining having dessert later tonight and thinking about all of these things. Um, you wouldn't like my cheesecake. I'm vegan. It sort of tastes like tofu. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, but to expand upon this idea, because science isn't the only one that's approaching this kind of question of consciousness. It's been wrestled with before oh, yeah. science was a thing. Yeah. Uh, is it? Is it? Um, I mean, how am I? How do I put this? And like, will science like actually offer the explanation that matters the most to people? Because science is still a construct of of humanity, even yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. even with it being totally. uh, explaining um, you know some of the immutable things we see in the universe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. J- just so it's clear, I consider science to be. Again, one of those nested stories. It's one pathway toward a certain kind of understanding of the world. And these other pathways are, are just as valid and just as important for the kinds of questions that they are designed to evaluate. And consciousness is one of the deep questions. And, you know, the, the so-called hard problem of consciousness, which is unresolved as of today, is that how could it be that particles electrons, quarks, neutrinos, whatever, how can particles that themselves don't have any conscious qualities at all, how can you take a collection of them, put them together in an arrangement, and then all of a sudden the lights turn on? All of a sudden this inner world emerges. How can that possibly happen if it's just particles and the laws of physics? And some say it can't just be particles and the laws of physics. What are the proposals that go further? Well, some say, like David Chalmers at NYU, maybe particles like electrons do have consciousness. Proto-consciousness, a little piece of consciousness. And if you get enough of those particles together and you can pool the proto-conscious qualities, you can get the conscious experience that we all have inside of our heads right at this very moment. Now, I'm not convinced by that proposal. I totally understand the motivation for it because the puzzle is a significant one. But I'd like to reflect back on an analogous puzzle that we now think that more or less we understand. In the 1800s, a similar question could and was asked. How can lifeless particles be arranged in a collection that somehow becomes animate? Transitions from inanimate to animate. How can that possibly happen? What was the answer that some put forward then? It can't be that. It can't just be the particles. You need to inject that system of particles with something else. The life force. Vitalism. And without that, the system of particles will not live. But 
Now, having understood life at a greater level of fidelity than back in the 1800s, very few, perhaps no scientist, speaks like that any longer. We now look at a living object and we say, yeah, it's the particles, it's the forces, combine them through chemistry and biology, and in a manner that we've not yet fully worked out, you will get a living system. Nobody thinks that you need a life force any longer. My own suspicion is that 50, 100, 1,000 years from now, I don't know the duration, we will look at consciousness and come to the same conclusion. It's just particles and forces, and that's all you need for the lights to turn on. But the way you describe it isn't, is one that reconciles with other forms of, of thought around this. And so like what I hear dissolving in your thought is this frame that has existed uh, accurately or inaccurately uh, of science versus religion, science versus yeah. um, other forms. But it's in that reconciliation that we may find additional deeper truths here. Yeah. So, so I, I, I fully subscribe to that perspective. You know, there has been a long tradition of tension between science and religion, especially in the last couple decades where there have been some of my scientific colleagues who've gone out in the world in a manner that basically tries to rid the world of religion. And the argument typically is religion is something that we made up It is contradicted by our understanding of the physical world, so it's time to grow up and let that perspective go. And my view on that story is that judging religion by its capacity to explain the external world is using the wrong yardstick. Religion was not developed in order to be able to truly understand the external environment. You will never use religion to calculate that electron's magnetic moment to 10 decimal places. That kind of question is in the sweet spot of physics. It is not in the sweet spot of religion. But there are other questions that are in the sweet spot of religion, or let me talk more generally, spirituality, right? If we try to understand our internal worlds, our conscious experience, how we engage with that external world, then that kind of inward journey, that spiritual journey, is something that religion, at least for some, can offer a powerful guide. You know, there's a, there's a great and, and, and profound book on religion that doesn't seem to be read as much today as it, it should be. It's William James' Varieties of Religious Experience, published in 1905, based on 20 or so lectures that he gave in Scotland in 1902 and 1903, And here's a scientist, a psychologist, a respected psychologist who goes through the kinds of religious experience that exist in the world and the roles, the important roles that those experiences play. And by the end of the lectures, by lecture 20, he sums it up in a way that is remarkably poetic. He describes religion and spirituality as something that allows us to understand the terror and the beauty of phenomenon that allows us to deeply understand the the voice of the thunder, the gentleness of the summer rain, the sublimity of the stars. And it's that 
inner capacity to feel the world as opposed to just lay out its nuts and bolts in the way that we physicists do, that is deeply important and a vital role for religion and spirituality in the world. So to me, that's another one of the stories that needs to be combined within the collection to have a a full understanding of the human experience. Um. Uh, I'll just say, like, what you described, that, that feeling, that emotion, um, the, the sublimeness of, of the stars, yeah. that's what I get from science. That's you, what I get when I look up at, at the heavens outside and feel, like, the combined knowledge of, of humanity across yes. hundreds of years. Yes, and it's that combined knowledge. You know, there's this, this wonderful poem of... Walt Whitman, that you're probably familiar with, many are the learned astronomer, right? And in you know, I won't I won't quote it. I would get it wrong. But the basic gist of the poem is, the the person who's speaking in the poem is in a lecture hall, being lectured on the stars and the planets and the galaxies, and describes how he begins to feel sick and ill by just looking at the equations and the mathematics. So he leaves the lecture hall, walks out into the darkness and just stares up into the night sky. And and so if you can combine it all, then I think you can get to a place where you don't feel sickened by the reductionist explanation of what's out there. Rather, it can deepen your experience of looking up at the stars. But you've got to look up at the stars. And that is a vital part of the full story. So let's say we do solve this. Let's say, let's say we solve the if. The if turns into uh, a different question. Um, now we're in a situation where we have a full explanation of who we are, of how the particles at the uh, a billionth of a second after the origin of the universe gave rise to us. Uh, well, does that explain every choice I'm going to make from here until the end of time? Like, is the sense of of free will, which is, have been ingrained in us uh, in so many discussions um, for, uh, for millennia at this point. Is that real anymore if we're able to actually answer that question? No. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. the clearest answer I think I've yeah. ever gotten to. <laughs> you know, uh, now, now, now part of the answer, you know, reflects back on your framing of this conversation early on, you need to define your terms. Mm -hmm. And people define free will in many, many different ways. And when I say no, I have a very particular notion of free will in mind, which is the sensation, which I think is intuitive to most of us, that we are the ultimate authors of our actions. We are the originator of the decisions and the choices that we make, that we are the place where those actions start. And that idea that we are not somehow puppets whose particles are being pulled by mathematical rules, that kind of free will, it's a very strong version of free will, but I think it aligns with many people's intuition of how they live in the world. That kind of free will does not exist. And it doesn't exist because, again, you are a big collection of particles. So am I. So is everybody else. Those particles are governed by the ironclad rules of physics. They go about the world carrying out their quantum mechanical marching orders. And there is simply no place for you or me or anybody else to intercede in that 
unfolding of the motion of the particles. There is no place within the quantum mechanical laws where the laws say, follow these mathematical directives until this moment, and then wait for Brian to tell you what to do next. (laughs) There is no place for us to get in on the action. And that's the sense in which that kind of free will is absent. And that's a beautiful example of how the nested stories need to be internally consistent. Up here at the human level, we can certainly describe the sensation of free will, the experience of making a choice. But when you then attempt to make a fully consistent story that brings in the physicist reductionist account, you need to... Think about your language in a somewhat different way. The sensation of free will, the sensation of making a choice is obviously real. But the thought that that somehow stands outside the physical progression is not. So I want to go inside some of these stories because we're still building those nested stories right now. And I have to say, you know, I'm I'm in my early 40s. And this past decade, we have seen... Uh, such leaps in experimental physics results that that shattered my imagination yeah. like in just in the past decade we witnessed uh the announcement of the higgs boson discovery uh we uh we were here on earth when a gravitational wave that originated a billion years ago rang rang two bells yep. on earth and we just in the last year we we imaged a black hole, which is a uh, you know it, it's impossible to image something black, but we did it. Right. Uh, uh, these are amazing moments in in physics. So I want to I have a two part question. I want to start by saying like, what has your experience been of the advances uh, to somebody that's not in physics been? Uh, that experimental physics yeah. has demonstrated over the past decade as somebody that works on the theoretical side of things. Yeah, you know, as a, as a theoretical physicist, my, my bread and butter activity is fiddling with mathematical equations, attempting to extract interesting insights into the nature of the world from the mathematics, and hoping against hope that the math is actually relevant to the mm-hmm. external world. And that last part of the story is a very subtle one. I mean, even Albert Einstein, after he wrote down his general theory of relativity, others quickly applied his equations to the entirety of the universe and came to this conclusion that the expansion of space should be happening, that the universe should be growing. And Einstein resisted that idea. To the two people who came to him with this idea at various moments, he said to them, your math is correct but your physics is abominable. And what he meant by that was not all math is relevant to how the world actually works. You have to have a deep understanding, a deep physical intuition to know which math should be in math textbooks and which math actually describes the world. So as a theorist, you struggle with that issue all of the time. And the beauty of the results that you recounted is each and every one of them 
began as a mathematical idea on a piece of paper on a chalkboard. The Higgs boson. Peter Higgs was walking around the outskirts of Edinburgh trying to figure out how particles have mass and jotted down some equations that ultimately turned into this idea that there should be this bizarre notion of a field that uniformly fills space and particles as they try to go through it feel a resistance like a pebble going through molasses and that's where mass comes from. And 50 years later, that idea was confirmed through the discovery of the little piece of that field that a collision of particles was able to chip off. And that gives us confidence that math can really show us the way. Gravitational waves. 1916 and 1918, Albert Einstein wrote two papers on the possibility that there could be ripples in the fabric of space that would travel through time that, in principle, might be detected. He actually never thought we'd detect those waves. He wasn't even sure of his own mathematics at that point. But hundred years later, as you say, we build devices and we detect these ripples in the fabric of space. The math was right. The math led the way. Black holes, 1917, a guy named Carl Schwarzschild, who's at the Russian front during World War I and gets tired of calculating artillery trajectories, somehow gets a hold of Einstein's manuscript on the general theory of relativity and in the trenches starts to calculate what would happen if a star would be compressed to a very small size and realizes the possibility that there might be these things called now black holes. Nobody believes that they could possibly exist. And over time, mechanisms for their formation are studied. People begin to warm to the idea that black holes are actually out there. Indirect evidence starts to come to us who say the motion of stars around the center of our galaxy and other things of that sort. But you're absolutely right. Last year, we finally take a photograph with some air quotes around that of a black hole that's actually out there 55 million light years away in the middle of a distant galaxy. Wow. Math is pretty good. The story to me is is one of persistence, like these ideas that people fought for, and not just the the lone people that you represented, but the thousands of people that iterated on those ideas, yeah. led to billions of dollars, billions of uh, of investment, incountable uh, hours of of time put into this, uh, that led to these incredible moments, leading us to. More questions. Yeah, uh, and I I look upon those those moments, and especially when I when I saw the um, the the gravitational wave discovery, and you look at the paper, and Albert Einstein's paper is the first cited paper yeah. on, on that paper, uh, and you just think about the incredible body of knowledge that we're building together, and in a time when it feels like we feel divided yep. oftentimes, it it was a incredible resonant story. So fast forwarding to part two. Is what's next? Is are there so much more to do in experimental physics that we're going to see another decade that feels like this past one? Or are we starting to move into an area where some of the the frontiers are really at the chalkboard? Well, many of the issues that we still want to resolve are quite difficult to test experimentally. So we'd love to understand why the particles have the particular masses that they do, as that impacts how they behave when they come together in big groups. You know, we'd love to understand why the Big Bang happened at all. Again, the question that we started with a while ago. We'd love to understand if there's a unified theory that could, in a single mathematical sentence, 
bring together all the forces of nature and all the particles of matter in one unified description. But each of these and many other goals that we have are beyond the reach of direct experimental probes. And therefore, we are entering a realm where the problems are quite difficult. And the hope is that we theorists will be clever enough to find indirect ways that we can begin to test these ideas through, say, the next generation particle accelerator or through the next generation of LIGO, the device that was able to capture those two gravitational waves rolling through space or the next generation of space-borne telescopes that perhaps will understand the nature of the dark energy that we think is causing the expansion of space to accelerate. So it's not that we are leaving the realm of observable and experimental physics, but some of the big remaining questions will be a deep challenge to connect up with observation and experiment. So quickly, and I know because this is a a deep question and I don't want to get caught in its gravitational pull. Do you think the the search for a theory, a unified theory, a theory of everything, is a fruitful search for us to be embarking on? Um, I'm biased. Uh, I've, I've spent my professional career trying to develop one such theory. Mm-hmm. And my view is that there is great risk in spending time on trying to develop a unified theory, but there is also potential great payoff if that journey succeeds, mm-hmm. right? To have the deep fundamental laws that are able to describe forces and matter in a manner that puts gravity and quantum mechanics together would itself allow us to undertake studies and perform calculations and gain insight into realms like the moment of the Big Bang or like the deep interior of a black hole that are off limits with our current level of understanding. So will we get there? I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. Would I be working on these ideas if I thought that we wouldn't get there? No, I'm optimistic. The time scale for getting there is the big unknown. Will it be in our lifetime or my lifetime? I'm not sure. I suspect not. But nevertheless, this collection of particles will consider itself part of the journey. And, um, and that, to me, uh, is, is deeply gratifying. You know you're in trouble as a moderator when the physicist start ask, starts asking rhetorical questions. <laughs> 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 I want to bring us to the now. Yeah. Um, you have, you in particular, yep. uh, somebody who's dedicated uh, his life to public communication uh, through multiple books, series on PBS, um, really examining the, the interface of science and society. You started the World Science Festival in New York, which is now uh, in multiple countries. Uh, there's this sense that uh, science itself is under attack. Um, uh, and a lot of people feel this way. Yeah. Um, uh, do you feel this way? Uh, and how do you sort of see that that uh, the nature of that conversation evolving over the next decade? Yeah, I mean, you know, with the nature of the current administration, it's hard not to feel under attack or at least to feel that the work that you're doing is devalued in, mm-hmm. a, in a very significant way. Thankfully, the holders of the purse strings um, have succeeded for the most part in protecting a lot of the funding that keeps us going. So it's not as though we have been radically cut. We certainly are 
on a downward trajectory at the level of support, which is um, disheartening. Uh, but um, but yes, that that is the nature of the the current climate. That could radically change in a short period of time. I think we all hope that it will radically change, and this will just be one of those bad nightmares. Mm-hmm. In that context, you've emphasized so much of your career on making sure that children have access. Uh, to great scientific resources, that they're engaged in these same searches. So one of the questions I heard when I, when I was talking to the, the audience in line was, how do we keep that as a renewable resource? Because whether uh, funding goes up or down over a two-year cycle is kind of immaterial in the context of how the next generation uh, engages and the opportunities they have around science. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I think there's a two-prong approach. You know, there's the, the so-called informal science education, which is certainly what it's called by the National Science Foundation, which the kinds of activities where you try to reach the next generation outside the formal educational system. And that's the route, for instance, that we have taken because it is very difficult a, to change the formal educational system, and B, there are some absolutely great teachers out there in the world, but the nature, the structure of the formal educational system is not one that is particularly adept at inspiring wonder. And that's what you need for the next generation to want to participate in these kinds of ideas. And I can speak for myself, even though it's anecdotal, my experience in talking to kids from various trips that I do around the country is that this is a fairly uniform experience. My kids, their interest in science is largely based on trying to do well on the next quiz, trying to do well on the next exam. Mm -hmm. When I kind of try to take them beyond that, they're not that interested because there is such incredible pressure upon them from each and every course that they are taking Mm -hmm. to try to do well in an assessment. And so we are so incredibly assessment-focused that we drain a lot of the inspiring nature of these ideas. So I think it's absolute... Look, I'm not trying to be soft on, on rigorous education. Kids need to understand how to deal with mathematical equations and understand parts of the cell and so forth. But if you don't have a parallel track that takes them out to the stars, then you leave them with a lifeless sense of what this thing called science is all about. I guess sometimes you just have to go look at the stars. And you look do. Up. Uh, I want to leave you with, the, with this quote. Um, it's from a... Uh, a physicist that I I really revere. Um, It goes, all these equations, uh, theorems, laws, have no intrinsic value. Uh, They are, after all, a collection of lines and squiggles on chalkboards and journals and textbooks. Their value comes from their understanding and acceptance and worth from the minds they inhabit. Um, And I read that to you because... Uh, when I got the audiobook a, a version of your book, I heard you recite that line and near the end of your book, and it, it brought me to, to tears because it was the idea that it is not about developing the equation that it's going to solve it all. It is about how that, that finding, that discovery is translated to everyone else that yeah. matters. Yeah. I think uh, uh, 
uh, I, I happen to agree with that 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 sentence. That's that good you because you wrote it. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and 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 moreover, I would even go further as I do in the book. You know, I am of the persuasion that there is no such thing as an external notion of good, of evil, of right, of wrong, of morality or immorality. Everything that we hold dear, we impose on the external world by virtue of experience and by virtue of what takes place inside this gloppy, great thing inside of our heads. And included in that is the urge to deeply understand the nature of reality, to deeply understand the equations and the mathematics that describes as much of the world as we can possibly put into that framework. But the value of all of this, the origin of all of this, the meaning of all of this is completely manufactured. And to me, much as we were saying before, I see that as a deeply positive quality of these undertakings because we are not taking something from the external environment that's imposed upon us by some deity or imposed upon us by some universal force that's out there. There is no universal answer hovering in the depths of space and waiting for us to find it. Rather, we are the product of the mindless, purposeless laws of physics. And that is deeply inspiring when you recognize that we are the product of a nearly infinite collection of quantum processes stretching back to the Big Bang, each and every one of which could have gone that way instead of this, yielding a universe in which none of us would actually be here. And yet against those astounding odds, we are here. And it's even more than that. Not only are we here, we are these exquisitely ordered collections of particles that can do Amazing things, right? In a flitting burst of activity, we can experience beauty. We can illuminate mystery. We can have wondrous experience of the universe. And to me, that just fills me with a sense of gratitude for being here. A gratitude that borders on reverence. And that kind of reverence for our existence at this moment, regardless of the crazy stuff that happens in the local environment around us, to me, adds a certain kind of positive, deeply felt quality to the world, which I think is a vital way of looking at how we fit into the grand whole. I'm definitely... I'm definitely telling my wife that she's an exquisite collection of particles later tonight. Uh, please join me in thanking Brian Green. I hope you've enjoyed this evening's program presented by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley and by Wonderfest. Again, we would like to thank Brian Green, author of Until the End of Time, Kishore Hari of Tested.com, our audience here in Silicon Valley, and those of you joining us on the radio and web. And now, this meeting is formally adjourned. <laughs>